Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week was Johnson & Johnson being held accountable for contributing to an opioid addiction crisis in Oklahoma. A judge ruled that they must pay $572 million for creating a public nuisance, exaggerating the benefits of painkillers, and minimizing addiction risks. For more on this story, we spoke to Daniel Siegel. He's the senior trials reporter at Law 360 for what this ruling means. Well, the state's argument was kind of threefold. You know, it was that Johnson & Johnson, through its subsidiary Janssen, was selling its own opioids, Nucinta, which is the drug to pentadol, and Duragesic, which is fentanyl, which is also in the news a lot lately. But, you know, those were really not big sellers, but the argument was that they were telling doctors that they weren't addictive or were not highly addictive, citing misleading studies, and just generally doing what they could to push sales while kind of skirting the truth in terms of what the facts about the drugs were. Second, these companies were also owned Tasmanian Alkaloids and Naramco, which were companies that made the raw ingredients other drug makers use. So Purdue Pharma, which makes uh, OxyContin, they were buying their raw ingredients from these companies owned by Johnson & Johnson. J&J was doing what's called unbranded marketing, which was just telling consumers opioids are good in general, not connected to their own drugs, not as regulated, and just sort of generally saying, buy more opioids, opioids are good. Johnson & Johnson at one point was not the only company involved in this. There were a few others, but they settled out with the state of Oklahoma leading Johnson & Johnson to be the sole defendant in this. That's right. And, you know, Purdue, who I already mentioned, has sort of been the number one company in the news. Uh, they have faced criminal actions, actually. And, you know, OxyContin, OxyCodone has sort of been, I would say, the number one driving drug. And Teva Pharmaceuticals, which is another company, you know, they Purdue paid $270 million. Teva paid $85 million before trial to uh, resolve the cases against them. And it did lead kind of an interesting situation where J&J probably had less of the market than these two other companies, but they are getting held responsible for the entire crisis in this ruling. Yeah, and Oklahoma wasn't necessarily seeking monetary damages, but they wanted $17 billion to go into a fund that would help employ a range of different measures, public education campaigns, addiction treatment services. That's really where they were going, uh, almost like reimbursing the state for the cost of the crisis that had already occurred. That's exactly right, and that's exactly how to think about it. This is under something called public nuisance law. This is kind of a new use of it. Usually it would be for something like, for example, a farm is polluting a river or something. It's you know, used to fix some sort of you know, public damage, public nuisance. And in this case, they're saying the public damage is all these people who are you know, wrongly being addicted to opioids. And so whatever it costs to fix that problem is the damage they were seeking. As you mentioned, they were seeking a $17 billion funding over 30 years. And the judge actually explicitly said in his written ruling, you know, the $572 million, that's for year one. And he basically was just saying, there's no way we can say what will be needed in years two, three, four, and on. So if they want more funding in the future, they're going to have to go to the legislature or come back or do something at that point. For Johnson & Johnson's part, what were they arguing? I know they said that it wasn't necessarily just their drugs, that there's a lot of illegal heroin and fentanyl, and that's what really caused the crisis. They would argue, you know, one, that they had a very small amount of market share for their actual branded opioids. 
Two, as you mentioned, that you know, much of this problem is illegal drugs, or for example, that the state itself didn't do enough to identify and restrict doctors who were illegally prescribing, you know, massive amounts of opioids. And you know, the other argument they they made a lot, especially as relating to their supplying of opioid ingredients, is that this is all extremely regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Drug Enforcement uh, Agency, you know, DEA. That these agencies really they regulate it. They're just doing what they're allowed to do by the law. And what happens after isn't really their fault. There was over 2,000 lawsuits that were filed from different uh, states and local governments uh, with regards to the opioid crisis. This was the first one that went to trial, and we have our verdict now. The next arena for this will be in Cleveland, where a bunch of lawsuits are kind of lumped together. But it would be another, another similar thing where they're trying to get these opioid companies on the hook for it. I mean, that's going to be a little different. It's in federal court. It's what's called a multi-district litigation or MDL. And it is bringing together counties, governments from across the nation. Again, this is just, it's all big litigation like this. Every piece of information sort of fills in part of the puzzle. J&J is not going to go quietly. They are not just going to pay this. They're going to appeal all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court and likely the U.S. Supreme Court if needed. But if they keep losing it, at some point, it will sort of change the picture. And I think drug companies will have to start looking at settling Uh, even more seriously. Johnson & Johnson is having a tough time. They're facing thousands of lawsuits, not just from this, different things with uh, their signature baby powder product, their pelvic mesh things and hip devices. They're just facing a ton of lawsuits all over the place. A big part of it is that, you know, J&J, more so than I would say most companies in its uh, position, it is willing to go to trial. If you ask them, they would say, we believe our products are safe. We believe what we did was okay. And we are not going to stop fighting just because of a few bad verdicts. In the long run, I don't think we can say yet whether or not this is the right move by them. But certainly it, it creates a lot of headlines. Daniel Siegel, senior trials reporter at Law360. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. After that Johnson & Johnson ruling, another story came out about OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. There are thousands of lawsuits brought forth by state and local governments hoping to hold these drug manufacturers accountable for the opioid crisis, and the talks were that Purdue Pharma was planning to settle some of these cases in a deal valued between $10 and $12 billion. For more on this, we spoke to Sarah Rondazzo. She's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal for details of this deal. So we've known for some time that Purdue has been in settlement talks and was considering bankruptcy and that the deal that's potentially on the table would basically put Purdue into bankruptcy. It would turn over the company into what's called a public benefit corporation run by trustees. The current owners, the Sacklers, would step away. And so in the course of all this, the Sacklers would contribute $3 billion from their personal funds and then all the money that's in the company, both that it has now and the profits that it would get for products going forward would also be turned over to the plaintiffs for the settlement. I mean, I have to imagine that the Johnson & Johnson ruling that happened earlier in the week has to put a little extra pressure on this since they were found liable in, the, in that case and are having to pay up money. It just seems to me that it puts pressure on Purdue Pharma and other companies that are being sued to start settling just because to go through the lengthy court process and then lose in the end is probably even worse. And that's really the dynamic in in every piece of litigation that's interesting to watch is even when companies feel strongly that they're in the right and didn't do anything wrong, there's always the equation of do we take this to trial and risk what a jury or a judge will say about it or do we just settle and have finality and a number that we've agreed to up front that we know we can pay at this point. There's been this two-pronged approach of try to settle and then 
we're going to work up these trials to put pressure on the settlements. And so right now it's all coming to a head to some extent. You mentioned that the Purdue Pharma would be turned into a public benefit trust corporation. How does that work? Because they're not going to stop the company from making OxyContin and selling it. So they're still going to be making money off of it. And then and it's just confusing. How, how does that work? From what we understand so far, it would continue to be an ongoing operation, at least for maybe seven to 10 years. But essentially, any money it makes would go back into this ongoing settlement pot of money. But it is a bit ironic, maybe is the right word. The amount of money they get is dependent on the continued sales of OxyContin, which is the drug that um, issue in this litigation. And so it, it is definitely a unique uh, thing that I, I can't think of a real corollary. There's been other things in the past, like asbestos trusts and different things, but they all had pretty different elements. Purdue has sold more than $35 billion worth of OxyContin. That is a ton of money. Part of all of this settlement would also include things to help treat addiction and support those programs as well. And I think Purdue has already kind of started doing some of that, trying to maybe change the tune of their name, saying, hey, we are trying to help out. We do recognize it's a problem. They've been doing some of that already, right? That's right. Yeah. And they have some drugs, both that they already make and that are in development that would be around the addiction and opioid dependence treatment space. And so, yeah, part of this would be that they would continue to make those drugs and turn them over to the communities, you know, give them I don't know if donate's the right word, but part of this deal would include drugs that would be given to the communities that would be helping for people who are addicted or having you know, overdose situations. What does Purdue look like as a company right now? Because uh, from my reading, it, it, they took out their whole sales force. I, a bunch of managers have been leaving. What does that company structure look like? So, you know, there's still a company with uh, you know a few hundred employees. They still continue to make and manufacture and produce drugs. I think there's even some drugs in development. Uh, maybe to a lesser extent. So they're still trucking along, but they don't have a sales force anymore. So it's almost passive sales of OxyContin at this point. Sarah Randazzo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. In other health-related news, the CDC is investigating the link between vaping and a mysterious lung disease in teens and young adults. Health officials are looking into 193 cases in 22 states that all have one commonality. All the patients reported vaping in the weeks and months before they got sick. We also have one death attributed to e-cigarettes in Illinois. For more on this story, we spoke to Rachel Feltman, articles editor at Popular Science. So we know that the CDC is concerned and is investigating a possible link between these cases of lung damage and vaping. As of a few days ago, there was a message to healthcare providers where they said that all the patients they were looking at who had this illness had reported vaping in the weeks and months before they got sick, and that the connecting factor did not seem to be marijuana, that some patients were using various forms of marijuana, but not all the same forms and not in a way that provided that same troubling correlation that vaping and e-cigarettes did specifically. So for now, all we know is that surprisingly young people are getting, in some cases, irreversible and potentially deadly lung damage, and they are getting it in higher numbers than we would expect for that age group. And e-cigarettes and vapes seem to be at least a connected factor. We have not yet said, here is exactly what the problem is and here is what it's causing. But it's not surprising that vapes and e-cigarettes could cause this kind of damage. And I think from a lot of public health care workers at a lot of 
medical experts from their perspective, it was just a matter of time before something like this happened. What are the symptoms that people are experiencing? I've heard a bunch of things ranging from shortness of breath uh, all the way to people needing to be put on ventilators to be able to breathe. And we also have health officials in Illinois who said that a patient contracted serious lung disease after vaping, and this is the first death considered to be tied to e-cigarettes. What we're seeing is pretty similar to what we would call popcorn lung because it uh, initially was seen in people who worked in popcorn factories and the chemicals that were used to flavor it, they would inhale them. And it's a gradual onset of cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, vomiting, sometimes diarrhea. And that shortness of breath and, and difficulty breathing can become so severe that people need to be hospitalized, need to be on respirators, can even develop things like severe pneumonia and then potentially die. And these are things we've seen as occupational diseases, again, hence the name popcorn lung, uh, and it's a very specific kind of chemical inhalation damage yeah. to uh, basically the last branch toward the tiny sacs in our lungs that actually bring oxygen into your blood. When they came on the scene, it was marketed as a way to get away from traditional cigarettes. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we just really haven't studied these things so much. A lot of where people are centering their thought on this is it all has to do with the, the liquid, the vape juice and the chemicals mm -hmm. that are put in there. They've all been usually approved for you know, safe in the human body to be uh, digested but not to be aerosolized and put in through your lungs. So we don't know how these chemicals react that way in the lungs. And that's where a lot of people are thinking that this might be the problem. So we know that inhaling just about anything that isn't clean air is not good for your lungs. You know, of course, there are degrees. If somebody sprays a can of hairspray, it's not good for their lungs that they inhale some of that, but it's not going to cause serious damage. Then again, you know, if, if you are inhaling that constantly day after day, you might start to see some serious long-term health effects. And so the problem that comes in with things like vaping and e-cigarettes is that they are marketed as being safer than traditional cigarettes. And the truth is they haven't existed long enough and we haven't done the right kind of studies on them to know that that is strictly speaking true. And even if they are safe, I mean, traditional cigarettes are incredibly bad for you, so they could be significantly safer and still not be good for you at all. So as you were saying, the, in theory, they exist as a smoking cessation aid. But of course, we know that more and more kids who have never smoked traditional cigarettes are vaping and using e-cigs. And so even if there isn't anything shocking in the liquid, there have been some studies on like strange microbial growth in them. It's certainly not well studied or regulated enough for us to feel confident about what is in that liquid. But even if it was all chemicals that were in theory safe for ingestion or inhalation in small amounts, it's just an entirely different scenario for you to be inhaling those chemicals multiple times a day. Rachel Feltman, Articles Editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. In another health-related story this week, the WHO said that you can rest easy about microplastics in your water. Microplastics are showing up everywhere, even in our drinking water. But the WHO looked at the available data on microplastics, and as it stands, there's no evidence that drinking microplastics is a threat to human health. We spoke to Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, 
for exactly what we need to know. Well, yeah, it's key to say at the beginning that they found there's no health risk apparent in the studies that they've seen about microplastics and drinking water. Just to get that out of the way yeah, for yeah. people drinking a bottled water right now. This is basically a plea from uh, WHO to look into this. It's only been the last decade that we've become aware of just how much uh, of these microscopic plastic bits there are in everything. And so drinking water, obviously a key concern. And they're saying, oh my God, we don't know enough about uh, what's going on here. We really need to take a hard look at these things. The studies that they have looked at in, in uh, this report, they all have serious limitations. Help us out with the scale of this, because it is showing up everywhere. How do microplastics get into everything? I mean, you look at your bottle of water and you don't really see anything. It's the lid. Every every time you you know unscrew the cap and screw it back on again, little microscopic shavings get off of it. When they make the bottle, it you know degrades. It's it's not a perfect uh, mold, it, and little bits of it come here off here and there. And, and you're talking about things in the order of 100 microns for some cases uh, of microplastics. It's just a ubiquitous side effect of manufacturing plastic material. The same thing happens, you know. With glass bottles, there's a little bit of sand in them. And, you know, in your other cardboard boxes, a little bit of flecks of paper come off. It's just we don't know a lot about the chemistry of plastics in the human body. And so we're concerned about it when we discover, hey, there's a lot of this stuff here. Yeah. And right now we're okay, as you mentioned, but the production of plastics worldwide is projected to quadruple by 2050. So this just increases the amount of these microplastics and the concern uh, from there as well. Right. This is just a report on drinking water. You mentioned the Pacific Garbage Gyre, and the report points out that you know there's a hell of a lot of plastic everywhere that we're making so much of it and we're not keeping track of it that really this is just like one little area where plastics are becoming ubiquitous and that need more study. And one of the big calls, and this is obviously what's one of the calls that's been growing all over the country, is halting the use of single-use plastic products, uh, bags, bottles. We're talking about drinking water and, and, and you know, in bottled water sometimes too. But this is what the big stuff that's cluttering everything. Correct. Yeah, and obviously drinking bottles are the prime example. It's just too much plastic that's just being tossed away and lasts forever and then leads to this degradation that we're not quite sure what effects it's going to have. So the report does contain a plea for getting rid of those and uh, also, you know, wastewater treatment to get what plastic there is in the water out. And on that front, the wastewater plants, they do remove a lot of yeah. the microplastics that are in water, though, right? Right. Yeah. 90 percent uh, or more. And, you know, the filter in your uh, refrigerator, if you have one or, you know, on tap water filters, they do do a really good job getting these little particles out up to about 100 microns, which is about the limit of where the conventional studies can go. And then we start talking about these nanomaterials, which is another concern. And the big concern there is we just don't know how it's going to process through your body once, uh, you know, if it's going through your liver or something. That's kind of one of the concerns, one of the things we don't understand because there just have, haven't been studies to that effect yet. Right. It's hard to study on people, like experiment on them. Hey, you mind if we you know, shoot you full of these bonds and see what you... Right. So that's a tough one. So we have to rely on natural experiments. And yeah, there's three kinds of concerns. One, bacteria might ride along on these things more easily. That's not clear. Just their mere presence might gum things up on some sort of molecular level. That's not clear. And then, yeah, they might degrade and they contain plasticizers and other preservatives that, you know, leach out of them and might have toxic effects. That's true of a lot of things. And it is worth saying your digestive tract is really good at getting rid of stuff it doesn't like. Uh, it's just that we don't know. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>